uh, later. But nevertheless, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 1, where God willing, we're going to work our way through this first chapter of Galatians today. And last week, what we looked at in the introduction to Galatians uh, was the Apostle Paul. We, we discussed this was most likely the first letter that he would have written to the churches around 48 AD. And so this would have been around the very early makings of what we hold in our hand as the New Testament. And he writes this letter uh, to a group of churches uh, that is struggling. And the struggles they're having are because legalism has begun to press into the church. There were a group of Jewish believers or so-called believers that were now coming into the church. And what they were trying to explain through what Paul calls another gospel is that just simple belief in Jesus was not enough for salvation. That we had to add works or add the law, the Torah, to salvation in order to actually be saved. To which the Apostle Paul is going to mention 11 times in this small letter the word liberty. That we actually have freedom in Christ. Freedom to no longer be under the bondage of the law. And Paul shared with us what I called some very simple Bible math. And it goes like this. That Jesus plus anything equals nothing. That when we begin to put our own works into the need of salvation, what we're essentially doing is saying that as Christ is hanging on the cross, and he says to Telestai, it is finished, that that's not a true statement. Because it can't be finished if I now have to put my works into it. And so here we see uh, Paul's making the case that it was finished exactly as Jesus said, and that he is everything we need for salvation. It is by grace through faith that we are saved. And so, Paul also mentions in these first verses his authority, what he has been commissioned by or who he has been commissioned by. And what Paul makes this clear about is because they were questioning his authority. The reason he mentions his authority is because they were questioning it. And he mentions that he is commissioned by Jesus Christ himself, that the risen Lord was the one that actually ordained him into ministry. He didn't need approval of man. He only needed approval of the Lord. And so with this authority, he is now going to share with them the gospel of grace. This was the same gospel he shared with them initially. He is now going to reinforce this in this little letter. And we broke it down in these simple uh, ways to understand. He starts in chapters one and two, and he shares his experience with grace. Paul today is going to share a portion of his personal testimony, and I love the chance he takes to share his testimony and the chance we have too, because you know what people can't argue with? Your story. They cannot argue. They can argue doctrine. They can argue all kind of eschatology and ideologies you want to mention, but what cannot be argued is your personal testimony. And so that's in chapters 1 and 2. In chapters 3 and 4, Paul is going to instruct them about grace. He's going to give them knowledge about this grace that is woven throughout the gospel message. And then finally, he's going to give them the practical application of grace. And so what is wisdom, right? It is the application of knowledge. It doesn't make knowledge bad, but if you can't apply it, it's not actually wisdom. You're just learning for the sake of learning. And so all that said, we begin in chapter 1 where verse 1, Paul said, Paul, an apostle, not of men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all brethren who are with me, grace to you and peace from God, the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. 
Amen. And so Paul begins here, again, by addressing the churches of Galatia. Not one specific church, but churches in an entire region. He goes through his calling by Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, he says this. After he's finished up the salutation, he begins in the real message, the meat of the letter. And he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the, in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And so Paul begins, he is upset. He is disheartened by what they have done. He says, I marvel how quickly you've turned from grace. I'm going to share with you about grace. I'm going to remind you this gospel, but I marvel at how quickly you've turned. And this different gospel he's talking about is one of works. It's one of bondage. The return back to the law was really a return back to the bondage that they had been freed from by Christ Jesus. So he's saying, I'm just amazed that you've turned so quickly back to bondage after you've been freed by the Lord from it. And in verse 7, he says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And so he starts by saying, I marvel you've turned to a different gospel. And then in verse 7, he says, it is not another. That can be confusing. What he's saying is uh, the word gospel, it means good news. But the word that they had turned to was not a, another gospel. It wasn't another good news. Why? Because it was bad news. Bondage is bad news. He's saying, this isn't another gospel. This is actually very bad for you. And it is a perversion. The word perversion simply means an alternative version or a twisting of the truth. The truth of the message in Christ is that through simple faith, through belief, that we can be saved eternally. It's not by all the rules we can follow. It's believing in him. But what they were doing was taking this little bit of truth. And by the way, this is something Satan loves to do. He takes a little bit of truth, and then he twists it just enough to make it a perversion. And so this is what's happening. And he says that you've been troubled by these who have come into the church. Now, the word troubled is the same word as the word seasick. He's saying you've now become seasick through this uh, false gospel, this another gospel that they're trying to give to you. And if you've ever experienced this, you know what I'm talking about. If any of you have ever been seasick, it's a disheartening, disorienting feeling. Years ago, we had the opportunity, uh, mostly because I think we mortgaged our house again, uh, to go on a Disney cruise. Ever been on one of those, right? They are not ashamed to charge you an excessive amount. So as we're going on the Disney cruise, I did not want to be seasick or troubled on the cruise, mostly because we paid a gajillion dollars and uh, you know forfeited our kids' college education ago. So I wanted to enjoy this trip. So my wife bought me what are known as these uh, bands. And they've got a little dot that goes right there in your wrist. And so I've got these sweatbands now on this gigantic boat. And I look like I was stuck in a 1988 Jane Fonda video, right? I got the sweatbands. I'm ready to exercise. But you know what? I wasn't seasick, so I wasn't upset about the sweatbands. But uh, one evening, we decided to go out to dinner. And what better way to go out than to take the sweatbands off? I don't want to look lame. I want to look super cool and dapper. And so I take off the sweatbands. And what I found was um, they, in fact, work. They work quite well because almost immediately the motion of the boat, I begin to be troubled, seasick, disoriented. It's a very troubling feeling if you've ever been there. This is what Paul is saying. You've returned. You've been disoriented, disheartened. You're now troubled and seasick. But the question has to be, why? Why would anybody want to feel like this? And the simple explanation that's oh so popular is pride. Pride is what we fall into. 
The reason that we turn back to the false gospel is one of pride. Because for each of us, we've got this inner desire to want to contribute, to want to have some part, some stake in our salvation. And so we begin to work and try to earn God's favor and earn his love. And what we do is we essentially cheapen the work of the cross. And so for uh, these men and women, they had turned back to this life of pride, trying to earn God's love in their flesh. Because salvation through works is always appealing. It is appealing to our flesh to want to do. And it's so quick to permeate into, to soak into a culture. And this is what Paul is addressing. Now in verse 9, he says, And as we have said before, uh, now I say, excuse me, verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, Uh, Then the one which we preach to you, let him be accursed. And verse 9, and as we have said before, now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you, then what what you have received, let him be accursed. Now Paul is using very strong language. He repeats himself twice through these two verses because he wants them to get it. What he says, if anyone else... Or even an angel from heaven, if anyone shares with you any other gospel other than the gospel of grace, let him be damned. That's what Paul is saying. He's using this strong language to try to get their attention. And so as he shares this, what he's trying to explain is the seriousness at following the word of the Lord. If the Lord gives you a word, it is that serious. It is actually your life depends upon it. And for that, I was thinking through this week about an Old Testament story. I know you guys love it when we go to the Old Testament. But in 1 Kings chapter 13, in this spot, the nation of Israel had actually split into two kingdoms. So after the time of King Solomon, his son Rehoboam, it turns out, uh, not a great leader. And so as he struggled with leadership, the nation actually split in two. And the northern ten tribes, they went with a guy named Jeroboam. And the southern two tribes, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin, they went with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. And so Jeroboam is now in charge of the northern ten tribes of Israel. But what he's afraid of is that the nation might go to Jerusalem, where Rehoboam is housed, and worship there. And so he sets up false altars, an altar in the north to make it convenient because we all want church to be convenient, right? You don't want to have to drive a long way. We're going to put it right here around the corner for you. And so he sets up an altar in the north where people can have convenience and one in the south where they can have convenience, and he's got it all going on. But he also introduces uh, the golden calf of Egypt, the very bondage that God brought them out of. He reintroduces into the nation of Israel. And so from this point forward, uh, Jeroboam is known as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. And by the way, if God uh, gives you a title, the one who caused Israel to sin after your name, probably not going to go well for you. And so here in this spot, Jeroboam set up these altars, and the people of Israel have gathered all around, and all at once a young prophet comes out, and he has a word from the Lord. And what he says in verse Three is, this is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar will split apart and the ashes will be poured out. And so he gives this word of the Lord. He, he actually curses the altar to which Jeroboam, you can imagine how a guy in power responds to this. He points at this prophet and he says, arrest him. He's going to have him arrested. And just as he does, his hand withers up. <laughs> he recoils rather quickly 
And as he calls out to have him arrested, the altar actually splits in two, just as the word of the Lord said it was going to. But the king freaked out about his hand. He begs the prophet, please entreat the favor of your Lord and pray for me that my hand might be restored. And so this young prophet prays for him and his hand is restored. Now, Jeroboam likes the prophet. He wants to be buddies with him. He says, hey, come on over for dinner. Hang out at my house for a little bit. But the man says this. He he says in verse uh, 8, If you were to give me half of your house, I would not go in with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water of this place. For so it was commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread nor drink water nor return home the same way. And so the man left, receiving nothing from Jeroboam. And now he's headed on his way home, listening to the word of the Lord. When, all at once, an older prophet, one that's in the same fraternity as he is, he shows up hearing about what had happened with this young prophet. He addresses him on the road, and he says, Hey, I heard about what happened in verse 15. Come home and eat bread with me. Take a load off. Come hang out. To which the young man replied, I cannot return with you nor go in with you. Neither can I eat bread or drink water in this place, for I've been told by the word of the Lord. So he gives him, again, this word that he'd received from the Lord. I can't hang out here. Only for the man to say in verse 18, Hey, I too am a prophet, and an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house that he may eat bread and drink water. But in parentheses, he was lying to him. He claims that he had received another bit of good news, another gospel. Come home with me, hang out, have a little bit of dinner. An angel told me. And so the young man, being tricked, he goes back with the old prophet. And as they're sitting there at dinner together, the old prophet begins to weep because a word of the Lord came to him and said, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord and not kept the commandment which the Lord God commanded you, but you came back and ate bread and drank water, the place in which the Lord said, eat no bread and drink no water, your corpse shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. You're going to die is the word that he gets from the Lord. Now, you, can you imagine this kind of dinner party? I mean, here the guy just starts crying in the middle of dinner and tells you, thus saith the Lord, you didn't listen to the word you received initially, and so because of that, you're going to die. I don't know about you, but if I get that word at dinner, I'm hanging out at that guy's house until he kicks me out. But for whatever reason, this man just leaves the house like, okay, I guess that's what the Lord said. He leaves, and as he's on his way back home, a lion comes out while he's riding on his donkey and attacks him and kills him right there. The young prophet loses his life. All because he did not adhere to the word of the Lord. And so when we consider this and we think about what God has actually said, if anyone gives you another gospel that contradicts the word of the Lord, this is how almost every cult begins. They take the word of God and they twist it just enough. A special revelation, an additional revelation of Jesus Christ. And in almost every single circumstance, be it the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormon faith, they're all works-based faith. They're all bondage, and they're all a perversion of the Word of God. And so if it does not line up with God's Word, flee from it. It doesn't matter whose mouth it comes from, run away. Because what Peter says in 1 Peter Chapter 5, verse 8, to tie it back to the story, he says, Be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
Just as this man was devoured by a roaring lion, that's what the enemy does. He doesn't show up in a red suit and a pitchfork. We'd all recognize him. He shows up often as an angel of light, giving a different version, a perversion of God's word. And the way to stick to it is to stick to Scripture. There are many people you'll see. They'll be on TV. They'll be all over. They'll be super spiritual. But you know what they'll not be? Scriptural. They will struggle to stick with Scripture. Now, as I think about this, and I, think, I was thinking this week of who is the most likely person to deceive me, what I realized is um, that person is actually me. I am often the most likely one to deceive myself. I can't trust myself many times. Much like this man, this young prophet, what did he want more than anything? He wanted to just take a load off. Like, I've just given this prophecy, this crazy thing had happened. I could really use a drink and a little bit of bread and to sleep tonight. And so he deceived in part himself when he departed from the word of the Lord. Now, this is what Paul is saying is taking place. In verse 10, he says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. What Paul is saying here is, I am a bondservant of the Lord. If I'm seeking to please men instead of Christ, I am going to wear myself out. Instead, I seek to please an audience of one. And what I've shared with you before is Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says that the approval of man is a snare. It's a trap. If you've ever tried to achieve man's approval, approval of a boss or a family member or a friend or a loved one, you will find out it is absolutely exhausting. In fact, a fearing man or seeking man's approval, it does several different things. I put a few of them up here on the screen for you. First of all, a fearing man brings about humiliation. And I think back to the Old Testament and you've got King David, right? In 1 Samuel chapter 21, he's being pursued by his father-in-law. For a decade, his father-in-law tried to chase him down and kill him. And many of you think you've got a bad relationship with your father-in-law. you got nothing on uh, King David, right? And unless he's uh, tried to seek you down and kill you for a decade, you're probably not going to be in that camp. But here's David. He's being sought after by his father-in-law. He is tired. He's exhausted. He's worn out. And he finally ends up in the land of the Philistines. He's knocking at the door of the group that he previously had tried uh, to run off and kill. And as he's knocking on the door of uh, King Achish's house there in Gath, he begins to panic. Why? Because he's afraid they're going to take him in and kill him. I mean, after all, he's the guy that killed their champion, Goliath, just a few chapters before. And so what David does as he, he begins to drool down the corner of his mouth and he scratches on the door and he bangs his head and he acts like a complete nut job. So they're going to assume he's lost his mind. He literally, you can't make this up, he, he humiliates himself in front of the Philistines. This is a guy who by the word of the Lord killed the eight foot tall Goliath. And now here he is babbling like a madman, humiliating himself. Why? Because of fear. It humiliated him. Now, to go to his father-in-law and, and looking at the second thing that fearing man can do is it can bring about devastation. If you look at his uh, father-in-law, King Saul, he actually started off really well in his career. He was called by the Lord, and the Lord gave him this uh, great battle plan to go up against the Amalekites, those pesky Amalekites, 
who were always a picture of sin in the Old Testament. He tells them, I want you to utterly destroy the Amalekites. I want you to wipe out every man, woman, child, beast, destroy all of them. That seems harsh until you realize the Amalekites were known for uh, worshiping or sacrificing their own children as they worshiped Molech. They would actually perform child sacrifices, and God had had enough. He wanted them stamped out, wanted them gone. And so Saul goes in. He has this tremendous victory, and yet what does he not do? He doesn't utterly wipe them out. He keeps the best of the sheep and the best of the people. He even keeps old King Agag for himself because what do the people love more than a little bit of spoil? If I just give them a little reward, they're going to love me even more. He's afraid of losing the approval of the people, and it's going to bring about devastation. So when Samuel shows up on the battlefield, and he hears the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of the oxen, he says, Oh, Saul, what have you done? You didn't listen to the word of the Lord. And what Saul didn't realize is that if you fast forward all the way to the 31st chapter of 1 Samuel, as he's laying there on the battlefield, there's going to be a man come up and run him completely through with a spear. And this man takes the crown off of Saul's head and he brings it back to King David thinking he's going to get a reward. And David says, you're going to get no reward. And by the way, who are you? And he said, well, I'm an Amalekite. You see, the very sin that Saul wouldn't deal with eventually ran him through with a spear. That's the reason God wants us to deal harshly and viciously with our sin. Because it will eventually come back to get us. It will be devastating. The consequences will. Now, finally, fearing man can also bring about disqualification. When you think about the life of Moses, right? Here's God calling an 80-year-old Moses to go back and bring his people out of the nation of Egypt. To set them free from bondage. But what's Moses' response? Well, I, don't, I, don't, I don't talk so good. I struggle with my speech. No one's going to listen to me. So he's afraid to go and speak to Pharaoh because he doesn't speak clearly. Even though God said, I'm going to give you the words. I'm going to be your mouthpiece. I can't do it. And so as a result, he's disqualified from being the mouthpiece. And for, from that point on, Aaron and his sons become the priesthood. And if you journey through your Old Testament just a little bit, it's a disaster. It doesn't go well, but it all starts with Moses disqualifying himself because he was afraid to go and speak. Now, what kind of fear then is healthy? If all these fears are unhealthy, there is one fear that is healthy in our Bible. And the Lord says it in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. This is highlighter worthy. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we should not fear man, but who we should fear is the Lord. And that fear is a healthy fear. It is reverence and respect. It is the fear. I've given you the example before of the ocean. Have you ever been to the ocean and seen it? It is awesome, right? You're awestruck standing there looking at how massive it is. And that's the kind of fear we're talking about. Because if you've ever been placed in the middle of the ocean in a life raft, a little bit different kind of fear. Same ocean. Same kind of fear, just in very different perspectives. And so a fear of the Lord. But what Solomon says is this is the beginning of wisdom. It's not the start of wisdom. That, that word actually means the basis. It's the foundation of all wisdom. It starts with the fear of the Lord. 
And now Paul is explaining this kind of fear and respect he has for Christ Jesus. Where then in verse 11 he says, But I made known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from, from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, if you want to know who my teacher was, I had a wonderful professor. It was Jesus himself. And he's going to, from this point forward, give them his testimony. You might remember back when we studied through the book of Acts that Paul split his testimony up into three parts. It was who I was before Christ, uh, how I came to Christ, and who I am now in Christ. And he's going to give a short version of that right here and right now. And, And I share that because it is important for us to know, always be ready with your testimony. Always be ready with your story. People respond to a story far better than they do any of our Bible knowledge. And in fact, what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, he says this, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks for the reason, uh, the re- for a reason, the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. And so what Peter shares is always be ready to give a defense, or the Greek word is apologia. It's where we get our term apologetics from. Always be ready to defend your hope that you have in Christ Jesus. And so as we prepare and think through our testimony, who I was before Christ, how I came to Christ, who I now am in Christ, understand also that as we share words, what is just as important, if not more so, is that our words line up with our life, line up with our conduct. Do all those things come together? Because we can have this great, awesome rock star testimony, but if it doesn't line up with our words and our conduct, it's going to be quickly spoiled, quickly ruined. And so Paul is going to begin to share, starting with who he was before Christ. In verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. And so who was I before Christ? Paul says, look, you've heard the story. You've heard the story shared. He was an absolute rock star in Judaism. Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews is what he tells us in Philippians. And he, he had an incredible faith in Judaism as well as a great education trained there in uh, Tarsus, and then transferred to study under Gamaliel there in Jerusalem. And so he's got this incredible background, and then he also is so exceedingly jealous. Acts chapter 9 tells us that he actually uh, pursued, persecuted, killed, and imprisoned Christians. If you think you're zealous, you got nothing on me. That's what Paul is saying, who he was before Christ. Now then in verse 15, but when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, And called me through his grace to reveal his son that I might preach among the Gentiles. And so what Paul shares is who he now, how he came to Christ. If you want to look at the entire story there in chapter 10, I think it's interesting that he shares, instead of just the Damascus story, he talks about God separating him from his mother's womb. That even before Paul or Saul, as it were, ever had an idea who Jehovah really was, he had separated him. And when you look at Paul's life, it's easy to look back now and see his life, his upbringing, his culture. Here's a man exceedingly intelligent, 
but he's also raised in a Jewish home. He's given all the Hebrew education, but not just that. He's also raised in a Greek culture as well. So he's culturally understanding of the Greek language and their mythology and all their poetry, but he and he understands Judaism inside and out. And so he's actually the perfect candidate to be the one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But it wasn't enough until he was saved by grace, called me through his grace. Paul was set apart, perfectly educated, called for a time just like this to go and preach to the Gentiles. And it's amazing to me when you look at how God works in our lives, how he sews stories together, what he does to set us apart and actually create our own testimony, that when you consider this, uh, it is amazing at his grace for us, the way he loves us. Now, years ago when we got uh, shipped off to Farmington, I've shared with many of you uh, my testimony, but as we got transitioned down there, this uh, opportunity came about for me to share in front of the church for the first time. And as I was scrambling to try to write my testimony down, God had done an amazing work in our life, but I, it was like 10 pages in on a five-minute testimony. It was clearly not going to work out very well in the time they'd allotted me. But the question that kept sinking in over and over again was what people would ask, how did you get to Farmington anyway? How did you get to this small town in southern Missouri? And the answer the Lord gave me was, by the grace of God. Because had he not shipped us down there. Had he not created all the circumstances or allowed all these things to happen, uh, my family's trajectory is far, far different. It was truly a setting apart by his grace, doing a work in our lives, you see. And he was up to this from the very beginning. He was calling us by grace to set us apart. So this is what Paul is sharing with them. Now, he goes on at the end of verse 16 to say, and I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. And so he's been called to the Gentiles, but he didn't immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. And so as Paul is saved on the road to Damascus, he then goes and the uh, Christians there, they don't care much for Paul. They actually try to kill him. And so they have to lower him down in a basket at night, and he escapes, and he goes off into the uh, desert of Arabia, where he spends time with the Lord Jesus himself. And here he is, all by himself, in the desert. And I want to ask you this. Have you ever had a desert season in your life where it's dry, and it feels like the Lord is far away and you're not sure if you're ever going to be able to be in contact with him again? Well, if that's you, you're in really good company. When you look through Scripture, guys like Moses and John the Baptist and even Jesus had a season in the desert. And in this spot, God was actually far more near than they ever realized. So for the Apostle Paul, he ends up receiving what I call his uh, DD, his doctorate of the desert, not a doctorate of divinity. He receives his doctorate of the desert degree being taught by Jesus himself. And that, my friends, is the most important training we can get. Not saying seminary is a bad thing whatsoever, but what I'm saying is if you want to truly be trained, it needs to be by the Lord. The calling needs to be from the Lord Jesus. And so what we find is that he now has information from the Lord, and he also has inspiration from the Lord. I, I love this quote that I got last week. It was, information with no inspiration does not change anyone. 
Many of you have been around people with great information, but they've got no inspiration. Or perhaps vice versa. You've been around people that have all this inspiration, and they're going to give you a great message, but it's got no actual substance or information behind it. And so the result is there's no life change. But by the power of Jesus Christ, as his disciple, Paul has both. He has information. He has inspiration. He'll give the same to you as well if you seek him out on it. Now, verse 18 as we continue, and then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. And so what he shares here is after this three-year time period out in the desert of Arabia, getting his doctorate of the desert, he comes back and he goes to Jerusalem, but he only meets with Peter, who he spends a short time with, about two weeks, and James, the half-brother of Jesus. He gets a little bit of face time with them. They're the only ones that were willing to actually meet with Paul in Jerusalem. And now it's really easy for us to say, man, why wouldn't these guys all meet with the Apostle Paul? But remember, this would be like Adolf Hitler sitting in a Jewish synagogue saying that he's now converted. That very same thing. This is the kind of fear and destruction that Paul had made in his previous life. And so no one feels safe hanging out with the Apostle Paul other than Peter for a little bit and James. And so it's hard to blame them when you consider that. Now, verse 20, as we head down the home stretch, now concerning the things which I write to you, indeed before God, I do not lie, that afterward I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they were hearing only he who formerly persecuted us now preaches the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God in me. And so for the Apostle Paul, he wasn't able to travel to every one of these churches. He didn't speak to all of them face to face. But the word of his testimony went out. And look at the response. As they heard the word, the testimony of the man who formerly persecuted the church, now preaches the faith that he once tried to destroy. Wow, what a testimony. But they didn't brag on Paul. Who did they brag on? The Lord. God was glorified. Here's Paul's testimony, and yet God was the one that got the glory in it. And he was fine with that. In fact, he was great with that, that it should be uh, the glory of God that actually is sought out, that God is the one that receives the glory, not our own personal self. In fact, the reality is as you begin to develop your testimony and write what the Lord's up to in your life, I think you'll find out uh, something that I have is, but by the grace of God, there go I. When I consider who I really am in my flesh, not who I would put on and, and talk about in, in public, but who I really truly am, it's despicable, if not for the grace of God. And every one of us has a story like that, that when we begin to really reflect, we are nothing to write home about. But King Jesus most certainly is. He's the one that can change hearts. He's the one that can change lives. To him be all the glory None to us. And so one more Old Testament story may wear you out with the Old Testament today, but we're going to go to Jeremiah chapter 45 where here's a guy that was being uh, worn out by what was happening in ministry, a guy named Baruch. He was the right-hand man to Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah's got one of those ministries that no pastor wants to have because for 40 years, he gave a message of repentance, and he had exactly zero converts. 
Nobody listened to Jeremiah. In fact, he was called the weeping prophet because he cried and weeped and wailed for the people, and yet they would not turn. And so here's Baruch, his right-hand man, writing down things for Jeremiah. And finally, he's like, you know what? I think I've had about enough. I think I'm ready to have a little bit of glory. I'm ready, I'm ready to be on a different team. This is like being on the 0-16 Lions year after year after year. You know what? I think I want to go to the Patriots. I'm done with losing. And so he's tired of losing. And then the word of the Lord comes. And he says this in verse 5 of Jeremiah 45. And here you have Baruch. Do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. For behold, I will bring adversity to, to all flesh, says the Lord. Don't seek great things for yourself, Baruch. Because all flesh is going to see adversity. In other words, it's not just you that's struggling. All flesh is going to struggle or they are struggling. This is a reality. But at the end of this verse, he says, uh, Behold, I will bring all adversity on all flesh, says the Lord, but I will give your life to you as a prize in all places wherever you go. Don't seek good for yourself or great things for yourself. I'm going to see your life through every place you go if you just trust in me. And here you have the life of the Apostle Paul as we're studying through this letter. And this guy has been shipwrecked, beaten, tortured, given rods, lashed. I mean, everything you could imagine has happened for the Apostle Paul. And yet what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14, is that it's the upward call to Christ Jesus that's the prize. What is really the prize? It's being worthy to even be called. Think about that in our life, to even be able to have the opportunity to be called a believer, to be called a Christian, to be a bondservant of Christ. That's the prize. It's not glory. It's not riches. It is just to be called a servant. And the promise of the Lord is, I'm going to see your life all the way through. I'm going to do amazing things, not because you're so great, but because he is. And so, as we head to a close today, the question would be, do you have freedom? Do you have, as the Apostle Paul calls, liberty? Eleven times he uses that word in Galatians. Are you still in bondage, living that old life, trapped because of the law, trapped in our own sin? What Jesus wants to do is actually give us complete and total freedom. The trap in the law was that we were never able to do it in our own flesh in the first place. It's Christ in me that's the hope of glory, you see. And so that's the first question. Do you have hope in Christ? The second thing I would ask you is, if you have hope in Christ, do you love to tell the story? Do you love to tell the story of a redeemed life? I got the opportunity this week, actually in a job interview of all things, I'm interviewing this gentleman, and somehow in the middle of an interview, I just get to share with him the story of my life and what Christ did to change me from the inside out. I'm sure that guy wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting it either. It just came out. And yet as I was reflecting on this message right here and, and what we were going to learn this week, it was like, man, what a glorious thing to get to share with people a changed life. And it's no credit to me whatsoever. I was just along for the ride. It was only through belief in him. And, and that's what I wanted to share with you, there is nothing. There's no amount of Old Testament knowledge or New Testament 
theory or theology or any of these things that can draw people to Christ like your own personal story. Hone that. Work on that. If you don't have one, ask him to give it to you. Say, Lord, would you create a testimony in me? Would you build that in me? And what you'll find is that he will get all the glory when you do that. And so as I was praying through that this week, an old hymn that we would have sing at the Baptist church came to mind. And I just want to read this for you. Don't worry, I won't sing this week for you. I'll spare you that. But it goes like this, that I love to tell the story, more wonderful it seems, than all the golden fancies of all the golden dreams. I love to tell the story, it did so much for me, and that is just the reason I tell it now to thee. I love to tell the story, Will be my theme in glory to tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for your story that is written on the tablet of our hearts. Father, if there is any here that don't have your story written in their life, Lord, would you please give them the faith, give them the strength to be able to just lay it down before you? There's so much victory that happens in surrender. We are not capable of changing on our own, Lord, even though we try. Time and time and time again, we try to change, but you're the only one that can change us from the inside out. Would you do that for folks here today? And for those that have received that kind of transformation, that are so quick to say, but I don't have a dynamic Apostle Paul getting knocked off a horse story. But they do have a story of a changed life, of a life that's been made new, of a life that's been freed from law and able to live in the liberty of Christ Jesus. Would you please help them craft their story so they can share with others? Maybe it's at the Walmart this week or at their job or with family or friends. Lord, would you give them the strength and the courage to share their story and be ready to be amazed as you're glorified in it. Thank you, Lord, for fixing up broken creatures, broken pottery, and making us new. We praise you in Jesus' name. Please stand for a closing song. Are you past the point weary? Is your burden weighing heavy? Is it all too much to carry? Let me tell you about my Jesus. Do you feel that empty feeling? Cause shame's done all it's stealing. Are you desperate for some healing? Let me tell you about my Jesus. He makes a way where there ain't no way. Rises up from an empty grave. Ain't no sinner he can save. Let me tell you about my Jesus. His love is strong and his grace is free. And the good news is I know that he could do for you what he's done for me. Let me tell you about my Jesus. And let my Jesus change in life. 
broken dreams and wasted years until the past to disappear oh let me tell you about my jesus and all the wrong turns that you would and going on do if you could you could work it all for your good let me tell you about my jesus he makes a way where there ain't no way rises up from an the price for all my guilty who would care that much about me let me tell you about my jesus oh, he makes a way where there ain't no way rises up from an empty grave ain't no sin in the heat God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you, guys. Just so you know, we turn the music up a little bit louder so that I sound like Michaela. That's why I do that. Just so if I just do that, mimic that enough. God bless you guys. I hope you have a wonderful week. I'd encourage you to continue to work on your testimony and what Jesus would have for you to share uh, with those that surround you. Also want to mention a quick uh, update. was asked just... Uh, a couple times today about Ben. His surgery was uh, highly successful. They were able to repair the valve in his heart, and so he is uh, at St. John's in Springfield recovering. He is in the uh, out of the ICU in the CU room now, and so uh, I think he's on the sixth floor there at St. John's. And thank you guys for praying for him, and uh, hopefully get an opportunity to come home this week. And so uh, God is good, and uh, he is faithful, and so thank you guys for praying for him. You guys have a great week and a great Mother's Day. God bless. Mm -hmm.